You're listening to Are We There Yet? The podcast exploring space exploration from WMFE Public Radio in Orlando, Florida. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. India's attempt to land a rover on the moon appears to have ended in failure. The Indian Space Agency lost contact with the lander during a touchdown attempt earlier this month. It follows the landing failure of another mission, Space IL's attempt to land the Beerashit spacecraft on the moon earlier this year. This week, we'll ask the question, what makes these lunar missions so hard? We're also taking a look at gravity waves. A breakthrough discovery led to a Nobel Prize in 2017. But how are these gravity wave observations helping us better understand our universe? We'll ask our panel of expert scientists on our new segment, I'd Like to Know. But first, landing on the moon. Two recent failures highlight just how difficult lunar missions can be. So what makes them so hard? Well, joining us to talk about the engineering challenges of such a mission is Dan Bachelador. He's the head of aerospace, physics, and space sciences at Florida Tech in Melbourne, Florida. Dan, thanks for speaking with us. Always a pleasure, Brendan. So, Dan Bachelador, what do we know about the failed landing attempt of uh, India's lunar lander? What we know right now is that uh, the ISRO, the uh, Indian Space Agency, essentially, uh, they were very, very close to having a fully successful mission by landing uh, close to the the lunar south pole, where we know that there's a lot of ice. Uh, But unfortunately, about two kilometers um, before reaching the surface, they uh, lost contact with with that lander. Uh, And so now they have uh, a satellite in orbit of the moon with a very high resolution camera. Um, And recently we heard that they had uh, actually found where uh, the lander had arrived. And so hopefully now we're going to start to get some more information uh, about potentially what what went wrong uh, with that landing part of the mission, um, as has uh, gone wrong with so many uh, other landers before it. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking this sounds eerily similar to Space IL's Beerashit lander, right? Kind of lost contact right before touchdown. Uh, Is it kind of sounded like a similar... Uh, event happened? That's what we're expecting, yes, is that something very similar happened to uh, the uh, Israeli satellite uh, lander attempt uh, earlier. And it's uh, important to realize that, of course, uh, space travel is very difficult. Uh, There's um, lots of things that have to go perfectly right. And if one thing goes wrong, then um, you can have a catastrophic failure. And that there has yet to be a successful nation to land their first attempt on, on the moon uh, without something going wrong. And so this is half of the course, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Kind of learning as you go, right? Um, you know, what makes landing on the moon so challenging, as you mentioned, uh, for the first time for a country or organization ends in failure? What are some of those difficulties? Well, the first difficulty we have um, in getting to the moon is actually punching through Earth's atmosphere itself and getting into a parking orbit uh, above the surface of the Earth. That is where the most energy has to be expended, is actually getting away from uh, the, the surface of the Earth into orbit of the Earth and, and through the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, so you need a huge rocket in order to do that, um, and you need to be able to very precisely throttle that rocket Uh, so that uh, when the remainder of the spacecraft actually gets into its parking orbit, the next part of the maneuver can take place, which is the translunar injection, whereby uh, the spacecraft is given another bump in velocity, uh, and it takes uh, several uh, days, in the case of uh, the Apollo mission, to to get into uh, lunar orbit. However, in the case of uh, the the, uh, Indian Space Agency's attempts, they actually used... Uh, some very cunning astrodynamics to 
uh, help get their spacecraft over into lunar orbit. And then once you're in lunar orbit, uh, you still have to get down to the surface. Uh, and this is where, unfortunately, uh, something didn't go quite right. Now, in landing on the surface of the moon, uh, there's no atmosphere to break to slow down the spacecraft. So uh, the slowing down of a spacecraft as it approaches uh, the lunar surface has to be entirely done uh, by uh, firing rockets, retro rockets, in order to, to achieve that. So uh, yes, there's a lot of complicated uh, orbital dynamics that need to take place. One of the Space IL engineers told Marina Corin at the Atlantic that a mission like this is kind of like landing a missile. Does that sound about right? Yes, that's right. It, it does sound about right. I mean, the velocities that we're talking about are still kilometers per second uh, when we are uh, trying to uh, get spacecraft from one part of the solar system to another. Uh, and what's particularly challenging with the mission that uh, Chandrayaan-2 was uh, attempting was uh, it wasn't going into an equatorial orbit and an equatorial landing on the moon like uh, the Apollo missions were. It was actually getting into the, the South Pole. Uh, which means that it has to actually perform some orbital maneuvers that gets into a very different orbit than normal. Um, and so uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a huge challenge. And, um, you know, it's a testament to the ambition of the, the Indian Space Agency to go and attempt something like this. Uh, and no doubt there will be uh, future successes uh, building on the successes that uh, this same organization has had with their orbiter around Mars, for example, uh, there will be future successes uh, of getting uh, landers to the south pole of the moon, where, of course, we're all eager to uh, measure how much ice is there uh, so that uh, missions like Artemis uh, really have some uh, grounded data to go go on and uh, help humans explore uh, much farther out in our solar system than we've been uh, in uh, in quite a while for now. Now, you mentioned, you know, lots of folks are excited about what could be in that South Pole, how much water is there. Just briefly explain why water is so important to both lunar exploration and and deep space exploration. Well, water is the key to exploration, uh, not only in terms of the obvious uh, support of life. We all need to uh, make sure that humans have the right intake of water. We need water for uh, washing, cleaning and growing plants and things like that. But water is uh, hydrogen and oxygen, and that is propellant for spacecraft. Uh, and so not only is water valuable for the, the obvious things, uh, but also it is our ticket to uh, stepping onto the next phase of the human exploration of the solar system. So where you find water, uh, you find all of the ingredients necessary, not only to support a colony, uh, but to actually process that water into the propellant needed to actually take the next step uh, out in our solar system. Now, Dan Batchelor, another thing that's been discussed about um, these lunar rovers and, and lunar landers um, is regolith and how there's really not too much understanding of how the regolith might interact with spacecraft. How does moon dust pose yet another challenge of landing something on the lunar surface? Well, dust on the lunar surface uh, caused uh, some particular problems for uh, the Apollo astronauts. Uh, they actually brought it back into uh, the spacecraft on their, their uh, spacesuits. And uh, there are some uh, very uh, well-known pictures of uh, the astronauts kind of looking like um, uh, chimney sweeps with the, uh, with the dust that they had on their faces. Uh, and that comes from the fact that the, the moon uh, doesn't have an atmosphere and it has essentially the surface has been pulverized uh, by uh, meteoroids hitting the surface of the moon over billions and billions of years. So the fine uh, particulate dust there that we call regolith, um, it um, can cause health hazards uh, for astronauts. 
And it also gets into everything. So it gets into articulating joints and it's very coarse. And so it can actually cause uh, a lot of problems for uh, articulation. So uh, for robotic uh, explorers as well as uh, human explorers, it's uh, it's something that we need to understand very well uh, if we are to uh, safely have uh, crews operating on the surface for months or even years at a time. What are some folks learning from these mistakes and you know what still needs to be understood in order to make these missions have a higher success rate what are people looking into down here on earth well down here on earth uh, there's a lot of uh, work being done on actually using uh, regolith as a building material uh, and using the uh, rapid development that we've seen in 3d printing uh, to uh, determine how best to um, build structures on the surface of the moon and even on the surface of Mars in the future. And so uh, there's some really fantastic work being done here uh, locally in, in Brevard County in central Florida about understanding how we can process regolith and turn it into uh, essentially cement uh, that then can be uh, squeezed out through a 3D printer uh, to build things like uh, landing pads and launch pads uh, and berms and, and roadways uh, so that as we uh, start to develop uh, uh, colonies on the surface of, of the moon, uh, we are putting in place the infrastructure necessary uh, to actually increase the longevity of uh, the equipment that's operating on the surface itself. Now, a half century after the Apollo missions, one would think that landing on the moon would be a little bit easier, um, but maybe that's not the right word. Getting to the moon is a lot more accessible these days, right? Can you talk a little bit about the technology advances and the availability of this technology to different organizations uh, to be able to take these shots at landing on the moon? The ability to get to the moon is, is all about energy uh, and, uh, and actually dancing with the gravity that is actually in our solar system and in particular in the Earth-Moon system. Uh, the Earth-Moon system is rather unusual in that the moon is actually, our moon is actually uh, quite a lot larger as a ratio of its host planet than any other uh, planet that we've actually found or seen in our own solar system so far. And so in some ways we are very lucky to have a moon, uh, not only in that uh, it's accessible, it's not too far away, uh, but um, it's actually a large object as well so that when we get get to the surface, the gravity there is actually something that uh, is actually going to be uh, useful for us. Uh, but it also, the gravity of the moon also presents the challenges in terms of, of landing. But really, it all comes back down to energy, uh, which really gets converted into the size of and efficiency of uh, the spacecraft, the, the, the rockets that we launch here from the Earth, and then the spacecraft that traverse the Earth uh, moon distance and then uh, are used to uh, lower the spacecraft back down onto the surface of the moon. So uh, what we've seen since the Apollo era uh, is uh, we've focused on uh, understanding how humans can survive in the space environment for extended periods of time. And that was through the shuttle program and the building of the International Space Station. And now we've got a, a fairly good understanding, uh, particularly of human physiology and extended human spaceflight. We're now ready to uh, take the latest generation of rockets, uh, NASA's SLS system, and also the rockets that are coming online through private space, particularly uh, the Falcon Heavy that we are uh, enjoying seeing being launched more and more regularly from, uh, from the space coast here. And so not only are we seeing uh, the rapid development uh, through uh, the uh, private space industry uh, due to the potential commercialization of the resources on the moon in terms of the propellant that we talked about mm -hmm. earlier, uh, but also from uh, the rapid advancement in our understanding uh, from the scientific endeavors that are being taken undertaken by federal agencies like NASA. And that was SpaceX's Falcon Heavy you were speaking about, right? 
That's correct. Yeah, SpaceX is uh, driving forward uh, the technology necessary to get from point A to point B to point C within our solar system. Uh, and it's now uh, us researchers at universities like Florida Tech that are, are really excited to help support uh, the research necessary to uh, understand whether or not there may have been life uh, on the surface of Mars in the past, for example, uh, and understand how we can use the local resources that are already in place uh, on places like the moon and Mars to help support uh, extended human presence uh, on these bodies. Now, Dan, we've been speaking a lot about the failures of the um, the Indian mission and the Israeli mission, but there's been some successes on landing on the moon, especially the, the far side of the moon. Um, what what have we learned um, this year about these successful missions? So, uh, yes, recently there was uh, reported a successful uh, landing on the far side of the moon uh, by the, the Chinese space agency. Uh, and there were some uh, images released there of uh, a rover and indeed uh, an image released uh, that looks to be like a uh, the, the Chinese have successfully been able to germinate uh, some plants uh, on the surface of the moon in an enclosed environment. Uh, and so that's some very exciting, uh, potentially very exciting data to be coming uh, out of China. Uh, and so one thing that that highlights is that um, it is absolutely possible uh, still uh, to get to the surface of the moon. Uh, and there's such a rich uh, scientific discoveries, uh, discovery space uh, waiting for us uh, in terms of uh, the history of the moon, uh, the history of our uh, our Earth Moon system, uh, and actually finding out exactly what resources are there uh, for us to exploit in the future as we start to expand uh, the human presence throughout the solar system. And finally, Dan Bachelor, do you think that these failures um, that we've been talking about will discourage others from? kind of setting their sights on the moon or discourage the Indian Space Agency from trying again? Or do you foresee more and more organizations trying to land on the moon? Well, with these missions, it's important to realize that the the landers and the rovers are not the entire mission uh, and that um, the Chandrayaan-2 is actually still got a satellite that's in orbit of the uh, moon, much like uh, NASA's uh, lunar resource uh, uh, LRO is, is still in orbit of the moon and mapping the moon and, and finding out what resources are there using uh, high resolution cameras uh, from uh, from orbit. Uh, but I think that uh, because we are learning more and more lessons through uh, robotic landers, uh, th- those are uh, uh, less distressing failures to overcome. And I think uh, as as these uh, lessons are being learned with uh, the robotic uh, uh, landers, we're going to see actually more and more attempts from a growing number of agencies to land on the moon uh, so that uh, once NASA is ready to try and land uh, some astronauts back on the moon, indeed at the lunar south pole. All of these little kinks have been ironed out so that we can have the maximum possible chance of a very successful mission uh, that's really going to propel the human exploration of our solar system for hundreds of years to come. Very exciting things to come. Uh, We've been speaking with Dan Bachelor. He's the head of aerospace, physics, and space sciences at Florida Tech. Dan, thanks for speaking with us. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Brendan. It's now time for a segment we're now calling I'd Like to Know, where we take your questions and pose them to a panel of expert scientists. We're joined today by University of Central Florida planetary scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. Today, a question from me. 
Gravity Waves have been making uh, waves in headlines lately, and a discovery back in 2016 was the subject of a Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. The observations of these cosmic phenomenon are helping scientists better understand the universe. But what the heck are they? I pose that question to the panel, and Josh Caldwell kicks off the conversation. The gravitational wave is the propagation of the stretching of space-time. Okay, uh, that sounds very simple. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so Einstein told us way back in 1915, right, that space and time are different from our original concept of, of something that you can't mess with. So you can stretch space, which means that everything in the space stretches, and you can shrink space. And gravitational waves are very similar to electromagnetic waves, and they're the oscillation of something, and the something here is space-time itself. So, so it's like if you have you know, a stretchy... Space spandexy fabric you can stretch it and you can make waves in the fabric That's and, right. and things like that and but here the fabric is space it's itself space which itself. is weird because you want to think space is the absence of everything but not according to einstein okay uh let's talk about how these observations were first made how do you how do you see a gravitational wave man it, that is difficult by the way it's worth mentioning that uh, a nobel prize was won in 1993 for the discovery of gravitational waves that were seen originally back in 1974. So it's a little bit, uh, you know, the, the first direct observation was this 2015, 16 thing, but uh, we saw them earlier than that. Oh, walk us back there. What, 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 what did we see back there? There we saw a couple of uh, neutron stars orbiting each other. And as we watched them orbit, we saw that their orbit was very slowly slowing down. Why? Because they're losing energy. And it was exactly the amount of energy that Einstein would have predicted was lost to gravitational waves. So... But we didn't see the waves. We didn't see the waves themselves. We just saw this, you know, indirect evidence that they existed. So that was cool and very important, but told us they're almost certainly real. Let's go actually look for them. And that's the awesome discovery that, of course, was in the news in, in 2016. But you can't. So we're space stretches. So if you have a ruler and space stretches, the ruler stretches, too. So you don't see that ruler get longer. It's still 12 inches. still says it's 12 inches long. Uh, so we use a technique. We uh, the Scientists. people who make these incredibly difficult measurements at uh, the LIGO Gravitational Wave Observatory use perpendicular beams of lasers to see the interference of the laser light with itself, and compare that to the perpendicular beam where there isn't the same amount of interference because space is not stretching spherically; it's stretching in a particular pattern. It's a very difficult measurement to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the really wonderful thing, I mean, it's like the amount of stretching we're talking about is not a lot. It's not like I go from 5'6 to 5'9 or something. I wish I did. Mm -hmm. um, but You're a very tall man, Jim. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, but uh, so the stretching is minute. I mean, these arms, these lasers go four kilometers down and four kilometers back in this LIGO experiment. And the amount of stretching is something like one one thousandth the width of a proton is by how much that distance changes. So it goes from four kilometers to four kilometers plus one one-thousandth the width of a... Pro so how do you determine that that happened? And it's really an engineering marvel that they were able to do that. A, a proton is 10,000 times smaller than an atom. Right. Okay, so, so we're talking very, very, very it's tiny. It's ludicrous. I mean, even as scientists, we sit here and we're like, I, I don't really understand. You know, the, the engineering that went behind this is truly staggering, but we're able to do it. And we see it in... in we now have, you know, two – LIGO has two parts. There's a detector in Louisiana, a detector in Washington, uh, Washington State. Uh, and we saw the same signal in both of those. There's now uh, one in Europe as well, the Virgo detector, and they're seeing the same thing. So mm -hmm. uh, robust science. This is definitely for real. 
it's these these very very tiny changes they're seeing and now we know that there is this this stretching of space what does it mean what what does it mean to our understanding of the universe well we know it's another confirmation of einstein's theory that mass distorts and shapes space time uh, because the observations are consistent with with those predictions. It gives us another window into the universe. It lets us see things that we can't see through light. And there has been at least one observation so far where we have seen the light from a collision and the gravitational waves produced by that collision. Holy crap. That's so, awesome. Yes. So it's a whole new way of doing astronomy. It's not using light at all. It's actually using the stretching of space that's produced by these very energetic events where we've got a sudden reconfiguration of matter in the universe from black holes colliding or neutron stars colliding. So we're getting a much better understanding. I mean, what what's next? What what What's ahead? I mean, this seems like we're just kind of observing this. Yeah. So these were just some of the first initial detections, and they actually saw them pretty early on in uh, the sort of version of the detectors they've been using. Um, as Jim mentioned, Virgo has come online, so we have another detector online. And if you have three places, you can triangulate better, so you can see where it's coming from a little bit better. Um, but there's also some, hopefully in the near future, going to be some um, space-based interferometers, so these same lasers but in space, where you mm -hmm. have these telescopes that have to shoot lasers at each other uh, to try to measure the differences in the gravitational waves, which is its own very, very unique challenge. Um, but you can get higher uh, detection, or like you can detect smaller changes with space-based lasers than you can here on Earth, where you have to deal with things like continental plates moving and other shifts in or, geology, or for instance. Somebody slamming the car door. Even. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? That'll, that'll throw it off. Huh? Oh, my gosh. The noise level. Yeah. You know. There's yeah. way more shaking in the mirrors because somebody's walking overhead than there is because of these gravitational waves. But somehow they're able to dig out the gravitational wave from that. That is incredible. So the next is throw these things into space. Into That's space. our solution for most things. <laughs> that seems <laughs> like it, throw isn't it? Throw it into space and yeah. see. And the cool thing about all this is, for now, mostly what we've seen is, is, is this handful of things like two black holes colliding or two neutron stars colliding. But there's lots of other things that produce gravitational waves, and the next generations of observatories should be able to see those things as well. So, Yeah, and the big thing about gravitational waves that we've touched on, but not... So they're created by these really big, really energetic events. So it has to be something really massive or really energetic to actually distort space-time enough that then by, it travels and we can see it, right? So, like, technically gravitational waves can be produced by smaller objects, but they just never be detectable. But these things are produced by neutron stars and black holes and large, really massive objects that are creating these things that we can see. That was Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney, planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida. They also host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Check it out wherever you download your podcasts or at walkaboutthegalaxy.com. And if you have a question for I'd Like to Know, send it in. Shoot me an email. It's arewetheryet at wmfe.org. That's arewetheryet at wmfe.org. You can also send me a tweet at awtymars or find us on Facebook. Just search Are We There Yet Podcast. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Be sure to follow us on those social media pages for the latest in space news. And stay listening. Next week, we talk about a new study that says bugs might be the best resource for people living on Mars long term. This podcast is a production of WMFE, and support for it comes from our listeners. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. For more space news, visit us online at wmfe.org space. And until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.